This podcast is about scoring systems and parameters, something that I know very little about, as will become abundantly apparent when you listen on. The first time I ever even thought about parameters was when I was looking at some scores online with Nikki Moss, who's a meet director for various levels of competitions. Instead of looking just down the list of names, she immediately identified that the task wasn't a thousand points and then looked at the bottom of the score sheet to find out what the parameters were to know why the day had been devalued. This was all a little baffling to me, but it's always stuck in my mind as an area to look into further. So this podcast is about how scoring parameters affect you in competition and why you should know about them. It also hopes to demystify why some days are high scoring and some don't seem to count for anything. Jörg Ewald is from Switzerland and has been a paraglider pilot since 1992, a competitor since 2002, and he did his first World Cup in 2004. His experience with scoring competitions goes back to 2002 when he started a small competition series in Northern California where he lived at the time. He's recently been appointed chairman of CIVL Software Working Group and he's now in charge of development of FS, Civil Scoring Programme for Paragliding and Hang Gliding XC competitions. In his professional life he's a product manager for a web company. My lack of knowledge of this topic extended to the fact that I was confused about the difference between scoring software like FS, CompCheck, CompGPS, AirScore, etc. and the parameters that are used within these. To a competitor, the scoring system is far more important than the software that runs it, so I asked Jörg to explain the major parameter sets currently in use. Okay, uh, GAP is what we call a scoring formula. It's one of a couple of scoring formulas. The scoring formula basically determines how we assign points to a pilot after he did his flight. There is, by now, there is only two major formulas left. One is called GAP, and the other one is the one that's used by PWCA, although PWCA changed quite a bit in the last three, four years. Or three, four years ago, they changed their formula quite a bit, and now they're very close to GAP. They basically use a slight variation of GAP, but they've grown together. When I started competitions 10 years ago, they were really far apart. They used totally different ways of calculating points, but by now they're pretty pretty similar. Uh, in, in your first question, we talked about uh, scoring software, scoring programs. So the, the program is one thing, and then it's a question of which formula is being used with that program. So for instance, in FS, you can choose whether you want to evaluate a competition using GAP or you want to use uh, the PWCA formula. GAP, the three letters, they stand for names. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Gerolf, uh, Gerolf Heinrichs, the, the German hang glider pilot, and then Angelo, the A is Angelo Crapanzana, Italian former hang gliding pilot, and then P is Paul Mollison, I think he's Australian. And those three, they, at like, in the end of the 90s last year, they're in, at the end of the 90s of the last century, they sat together said, we want to come up with a good formula to score hang gliding competitions. I mean, they were all hang glider pilots, so that's where their interest was. And they had long discussions and everything. Then they, they came up with the first version. And they, because of their initials, they called it GAP. And CIVL quickly adopted that. And 2000, they started using that formula. I have no idea what was being used before that, but then that formula got developed further 
there was a major update in 2002, and basically since then we've only played with slight variations of that. In 2002, they introduced uh, the famous leading points, and ever since then, they, uh, that's basically the standard that's being used. Okay, so the scoring programs then take basically the parameters and the, the formulas from GAP or the PWCA system, and then you just run it through that software, and it basically allows you to then score a competition. Exactly. So okay. you basically you you have several inputs to to create a score. You have you choose which formula to take, and then for each formula you decide a couple of parameters, and then you have all the you set a task. You define what was the task of that day, and then you have all the tracks of all the pilots, and you mix those four things, give it a good shake, and then in the end what comes out is the score sheet. Okay, so, so let's talk about a few of these parameters then because um, those are actually the things that make a difference to a, a race or a, a competition task. Exactly, yeah. Basically, when somebody uh, starts a competition, ideally before the competition starts, but usually it happens during the first briefing if somebody knowledgeable is around and asks for it. And even worse, sometimes it happens while downloading the first tracks. But anyway, sometime up front, somebody needs to decide on the what we call the gap parameters. There are four values, basically, that everyone has to set before the competition starts, and they de define how points are assigned depending on what the conditions are going to be and what kind of tasks can be flown at that specific site. So it's really something that a meet director should spend some time thinking about what, what kind of tasks are going to be done here in the next week. And then the four basic gap parameters are nominal distance, minimum distance, nominal goal, and nominal time. And basically what they define is what is a good task here. Because the idea being, uh, that in order for a task to be valid, to, to count a lot, you need to spend enough time and enough cover enough distance for pilots to make uh, several decisions. If it's a very short task where nobody or, or maybe one, one decision is enough, you go left or right and then that's it, you're already in goal, probably it's not a good proof of who's the better pilot. So they said you need this Depending on the site, you need different distances to, to create a task where several decisions decide who is going to win and to factor the luck factor out. And so they say, well, first of all, we want to know how, how long should the task be, how many kilometers should it be. So at every site where you want to run a competition, you decide what is the normal distance, what, what is the, the average distance for a good task here. And some sites like, I don't know, in Valle de Bravo, a good distance is probably 80 kilometers. That's what is being flown there on a good day, on a normal day. It's an 80-kilometer task. We have other sites where on a good day you won't cover more than 40, 50 kilometers. So there you set the, the nominal distance to that value. Then the second one is minimum distance, and that's basically just if I launch and sink out, how far do I get? The thinking was that if 
we don't have a, a value like that, and people, even if they sink out, they will just push their glide to the maximum and probably land in very inappropriate fields at the bottom of the hill just to eke out a couple kilometers more or a couple hundred meters maybe. So they decided on a minimum distance saying everybody who launches, and even if they bomb out right away, they get a minimum of that many kilometers. So you set that value to something that is a little further than where you go if you just bomb out. So now usually it's set to five kilometers, isn't it? Five kilometers. It can be ten if you got a really high altitude for launching. Just so if I'm about to sink out, I know I'm going to get five kilometers anyway, so I might as well land at the official landing, which is only two kilometers away, and not push it into the field next to it. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. It's a, it's a safety uh, thing, basically, for the minimum distance. Mm-hmm. Then the third one, that's nominal goal, and that's how many pilots do you expect in goal on a good day? Now, of course, every uh, meet director aims or wants to have all the pilots in goal all the time, but that is not really the issue here. It's more of how many how many does it need as a minimum for it to be a good task, I mean, if, if you only have like one or two pilots in goal, then maybe luck played a bigger role than pilot skill. So usually that's something that's set to, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 percent. So every day where fewer than those nominal goal pilots reach goal, it's considered not quite a fully valid day. And the last one is nominal time, and that's similar to to the nominal distance, just time-wise. How long should one be in the air? How long do you expect the average pilot to fly to cover this nominal distance than the average task here? That's something that, yeah, depending on the site, depending on how fast you can fly, depending on what conditions you expect for the whole next week, uh, can be one hour, can be two hours. If pilots take longer than that, that doesn't devalue the day. But if they're quicker, and again, we think, well, they didn't have to make that many decisions. Maybe luck played a bigger role, so we devalue the day. Okay, can I just check with you with nominal time? Is the nominal time over the whole task, so from start to getting to goal, or is it the time over the nominal distance? It's the time over the speed section. You know, uh, a task usually consists of basically three parts. It's... You start and you wait in the air. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, there's the, the air start. From then on, at the air start, there's usually a big cylinder. You cross into that cylinder or you get out of that cylinder. From that moment on, your time really counts. Everything you did before, it was just uh, you flew around, but the time didn't count. But from that moment on, the race is on. Mm-hmm. From there until you cross the goal line or the goal cylinder, that's called the speed section because there your speed is uh, is being determined and that determines in the end your ranking. And everything you fly after you cross the goal, again, doesn't play any role and doesn't matter at all. And the nominal time is only considered for the time you spend flying the speed section. So from the air start till you get into goal. Okay, so you were talking about the task being devalued. As, as I mentioned uh, a couple of times now with those nominal distances and nominal time, they basically influence how much points will be available in a task. So this famous 1,000 points task that we all aim for, that's basically 
what should be only given on a good day when pilots fly long enough, far enough, and enough pilots are in goal. We determined by that that task was really uh, a good examination of pilot skill and luck didn't play too big a role. And so the task is worth 1,000 points for the winner. And if all that is not the case, like for instance, you fly in an area where normally you fly 100 kilometers and normally you fly three-hour tasks and then because conditions are pretty bad, you set a very short task of only 30 kilometers and the first pilot is in goal after already one hour, then that task would be worth a thousand points. It will only be worth a couple hundred. So given the task that is being set, given the flights and given the, the, those uh, parameters that we set in the beginning, one of the thir- first things the, the program does afterwards is calculate the day validity. That's basically a value between zero and one. So one being a day is perfect and we get a thousand points for the winner. And if it's zero, then the day was worthless and we don't get any points for anybody at all. So validity is is this value that determines how many points are going to be available for the winner. I just want to go back and check something with you because I'm very intrigued by this. You said that these um, parameters are set at the beginning of the week. So basically you determine um, what the parameters are going to be depending on your location and the weather forecast. Yep. These things are not set day by day? No. They must be set at the outset of the competition and stay like that because otherwise the tasks amongst themselves wouldn't be comparable anymore and uh, that would really screw up the overall results. Okay, but what happens then if you um, have a forecast that changes substantially throughout the competition? Yeah, it usually changes for the worse, right? Yeah. (laughs) So what happens then is that you get a lot of tasks which don't give you a thousand points, but yeah, I mean, you said this is a site where we usually have... uh, 60 kilometers task and now for a whole week you manage to fly only 30 kilometer tasks that probably means that the site's potential couldn't be used and the tasks each task was not quite as valid as as a full task would have been I mean if it's the same the whole week then it doesn't matter then just let's say validity is 0.5 for the whole week then you just everybody still is in the same rank, uh, in the same order. They just have half the points than they would have had otherwise. But if you have some very good t- days and then some very bad days, the bad days shouldn't count as much as the good ones, and that's why they get devalued. Would that then also devalue the competition in terms of its actual scoring, for example, in the world ranking system? No. Uh, uh, The world ranking doesn't look at the the number of points that were given. You see, there is a tendency amongst uh, meet directors or scorers to set those four values that I mentioned before, to set those very low. Because they say, we want to have a thousand point days every day, because that makes pilots happy and uh, it's, it's good. They think that uh, if they have 1,000 points for the winner every day, it's a good sign. Actually, it's not because that means that lousy tasks where you know, somebody with a lot of luck won, they, they get totally overrated. Then. 
to this basically to not encourage people to do that. The world ranking doesn't look at the points that are given. They just look at the rankings. The only thing they look at to maybe devalue a competition is if less than in paragliding, if less than three tasks were flown, then uh, you don't get the full points. But however they were scored doesn't matter. Getting back to this point that all these parameters are set in advance of the actual competition, I'm very intrigued by this because I didn't know this at all. So this is, you know, yeah. um, when you're marked on a, on every task board, actually. That's one thing every pilot could ask for in the first briefing. By the way, what are the gap parameters you're going to be using for this week? And then usually you see a meet director scratch their head. And, and then the scorer in the, in the headquarters. And <laughs> going to use. And then they usually end up with the default because, you know, whoever wrote the software they, they will be using, they had to put some initial value in there. And very often that's what's being used, and that's very often a too small a value for the sites we're flying at most of the time and also the, the, the kind of tasks we're able to do with today's gliders. Well, I'll come back to um, what pilots should be asking, really, and how it should influence their tactics. But just before I ask you that, you were saying that all these things are set up in advance of a competition, and that. It's fine if you've only got a week's competition or a three-day competition. But what about when you have a competition that's a series of events, so say maybe five or six legs, huh? where the conditions, or you know, you're at different sites and the weather can be very different, uh -huh. but you're still using the same parameters, or would you, use the, you should use different ones? Yeah, basically you should pick your parameters according to the site you're going to be holding your competition at. It's very interesting for me because, obviously, I used to fly in Britain quite a lot. A lot of people are quite disheartened by the way some of the lower-level competitions are scored because uh -huh. very often one task, one good task, will decide the entire series when you might have 12 tasks overall. Uh -huh. But because some people are only flying 12 kilometers and a few people fly 20, you know, the ones that have flown 20 get 30 points and the people who launched get 12 sort of thing. Uh -huh. So a lot of people are very confused about why that should be and if it's fair and, and they don't really understand this idea of nominal times and nominal distances. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, if, if you end up for a whole week uh, with all tasks, none of them giving more than 100 points, then probably you set your gap parameters a little too high for that site. But then again, I mean, I, I agree that's that's a problem that can't be really solved because if one of those days had been a good day, then people would have flown 100 kilometers and it would have been a thousand points day. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there, there's always this uh, this juggling or this this fine line between setting them low enough so most days will score a decent number of points and setting them too low so that basically bad tasks get overrated in the end. But it's basically down to the, the knowledge and skill of the meet director along with the scorer to actually sort out making sure that they try and analyse the, the, the week that they've got or the time that they've got as best yeah. as they possibly can. It's, I think it's got a lot of, to do with experience with what has been done at this site. And more and more it also shows that they need to consider also what has been done only in the last past, uh, couple of years, not what has been done 10 years ago because uh, we fly so much bigger and so much faster tasks now that you, with experience from 10 years ago, you're probably way off. 
And yeah, of course, the other thing is weather conditions, what you expect. But I'm really not sure that should play too big a role. It really should be about what is a good task here on this site in normal conditions that we usually have. Okay, so would you say that um, you know it's possible to you you know so one size fits all um, in terms of what scoring um, system you use, or do you think there's some that are more appropriate for certain types of competitions than others? There is a difference between what is still being called gap. Right now we're at we call it GAP 2011 because last year we did some changes to it. So there is a difference between GAP 2011 and the formula that's being used by the PWCA. And they, there, there is a, let's say, a clear difference in philosophy about tasks apparent and how they, how they differ. Basically, the PWCA wants to give a bonus to people who fly more aggressively out front who, who really lead out who fly in the front of the rest of the field so people get awarded more points more leading points for flying uh, for leading out especially early in the race than if you use uh, the gap version other than that they're they're pretty similar in my experience of the scoring systems you aren't just ranked by who arrives first and who you know and then in that order of who flies furthest uh-huh. It, it doesn't just go on distance; it goes on all sorts of things, and there's other yeah. other ways to earn points, as it were. Exactly. Like you mentioned lead-out points and how uh-huh. that encourages racing. Uh-huh. So, can you tell me a little bit more about how lead-out points work? Uh-huh. So, just to wrap up what you you mentioned, yeah, the, the winner of a task is not necessarily the person who arrives at goal first. In a regular race, basically, what happens is that you have four winners or four rankings. You have the pilot who flew the furthest, and if you have several people in goal, uh, you can't go further than goal, but so they all fly the same difference, but still, the, you, people are ranked by the distance they flew. Then you have a second ranking with a winner, potentially, that's who flew the task distance the fastest. So that's like the time winner. Then you have a third one in regular gap, that's who arrived in goal first, that's a little bit of an anachronism, and the PWCA got away with that because if you fly regular races with a mass start and everybody flies the same task at the same time, of course, the quickest one is also the one to arrive in goal first. So it doesn't make sense to distinguish that. Uh, that goes back to more of the hang gliding era where they use more elapsed time races or races with multiple start gates where the first one to arrive in goal is not necessarily the quickest. But the fourth winner is the one who led out the most. So we got distance winner, speed winner, arrival winner, and lead out winner. And for each of those four little competitions within the competition, people are ranked, they get points, and then the four points are added up, and that's their overall the score, the result for that task. Okay, so you get those four. So in terms of lead-out points, they're basically mm-hmm. designed to stop pimping. The, all these scoring systems, were the more recent ones, were developed to try and make races more equitable, weren't they? To try and make it fairer so that the yeah. people who, you know, if somebody just pimped all the time and then just mm-hmm. overtook them on the, the bar, that mm-hmm. didn't show as much skill as the person who led out. Yeah, but if... if 
your definition of a good pilot is one who doesn't do pimping, but <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's different points of view on that. Well, okay, I'll change what I said and say that the person who's making the most decisions mm -hmm. in a race and therefore has the most kind of concentration loading out of everybody, mm -hmm. it's felt that they deserve slightly more points than somebody who just sits behind them and goes when, when the person in front of exactly. them. Just is, is that more diplomatically put? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... I mean, the other one about pimping is also... I mean, that's, that's a very common way of looking at it. Uh, it's just, in the end, it's about winning. And so you adapt your tactics to, to gain the most points. And if you can win it by sitting in second row until the, until the end, well, then that's the game. And you need to play that game. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not decrying it as a competition strategy but the the scoring systems or gaps particularly is trying to to reward people taking risks because yeah. you don't have much of a race if everybody sits behind everybody and nobody pushes out yeah that was but, the big change they introduced in 2002 mm -hmm. so uh, up to 2002 the original gap there of those four little races within the race that I mentioned, there was only three. There was only distance time and arrival. And, yeah, they found that races were lacking this, uh, yeah, we lead out, we go out, everybody was holding back, sitting back. And because a lot of the same pilots were flying in the World Cup as well as in, in the CIVL competitions, they, they noticed that there was a really different style of competition flying in the two competition circuits. In, in the PWC, you got rewarded much more for flying out, for aggressive flying, for leading out, whereas uh, in GAP you didn't at all in the beginning. So they introduced the leading points, the fourth category. And... The idea there really is we want to reward people who fly out front. And the way they did it is that for every pilot, basically they calculate one, num uh, one number. And now it gets really complicated without the whiteboard. So basically what the program does to figure out one pilot's uh, the lead-out coefficient or how much leading out he did is... For every pilot, we draw a graph of time and distance. How far was he along the course line at a specific point in time? And that gives you some kind of a wriggly line going up and up and up because eventually he's going to be in goal. He's going to have covered the whole distance. But sometimes he's quicker, so the line's more flat. Sometimes he takes more time, so the line is more steep. And then you go there and you, you calculate the area underneath that curve that you just drew up. And for faster pilots, for pilots flying out front, that curve is lower, so the, the area underneath it is smaller. And for pilots flying further back, following other pilots, uh, the curve is higher, uh, the area is bigger. And that's how we calculate in the end the lead-out points. And that points out one of the big problems of that thing because, I mean, the idea was we want to reward people who fly out. If we have a pilot uh, flying out front, let's say, just for instance, Yasin, Yasin Savov, the Bulgarian pilot, he likes to fly out, fly by himself. Uh, so, of course, he should be the one who gets rewarded for flying out, for leading out, for doing a lot of the hard work, whereas others can just watch him and see where he gets the next thermal and fly there and catch up with him. 
But if you got another pilot like myself doing that, I'm maybe 500 meters behind him and just flying after him. So my curve will look almost the same as his, just a tiny little bit, a tiny fraction higher. So I, if we fly, if he keeps on leading out every decision. He takes it, and I fly behind him and catch him, uh, get on top of his thermal. In the end, when we both get to goal, the number of lead-out points we get, there's a very small difference. He will get only a f- very few lead-out points more than me because we got a very similar curve. So a lot of people think that just by leading out 500 meters all the time, they will get way more points than everybody else. And then they're very disappointed to see that they get 60 and the others get 58. But lead out points don't just apply to people who actually get to goal or who are Mm -hmm. right at the front in the lead gaggle. You can also Mm -hmm. be leading out in front of other people in, like, say, the second or third or fourth gaggle. Yeah, I mean, because for every pilot we calculate this area underneath the curve that says how far along the course line were they at what point in time, that, of course, applies to any pilot. And once they land, the curve just goes flat and they don't make any progress anymore, but still we calculate uh, the area underneath it. And so that means that you can gain, yeah, everybody basically up to a certain minimum gets lead-out points. So calling them lead-out points at one point gets a little ridiculous. I mean, there are lead-out points for the ones flying really out front, but for all the others, they're just an additional little competition within the competition. And the big novelty about that was when it was introduced that a pilot flying out front and then bombing out 100 meters before the line they would still get a lot of lead-out points and somebody taking two hours longer and then actually making it to goal because they made far fewer lead-out points. Even though they made goal, they would be ranked below the pilot who was quick and didn't make it into goal. Yeah, that happened to me in the last British Championships. I flew further than somebody, but they were much higher than me in the ranking because of lead-out points. Mm-hmm. Which actually is desperately unfair because, you know, I was right, you know, really far at the back, but completely on my own. So I was leading myself all the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm only I mean, joking. That's exactly. <laughs> about lead out points. And yeah, nobody's come up with a good answer yet. I mean, at that point when they were introduced, people thought that that was really the good idea. But there are being other ideas tossed around uh, with, with, yeah, nowadays with, with enough computing power we should be able to come up with a better system than what we have now. But for now, that's that's what we have, that's what we use. Another thing that you can actually set within the, the scoring parameters is penalties. Uh-huh. So th- there's various options for, you know, if it's a more low-level comp or if it's a very high-level comp. So, for example, in a low-level comp, you might want to set the penalty for jumping the start as a percentage rather than just no score at all, which you probably would do in a high-level competition where you would expect competitors to know <laughs> how to use their <laughs> instruments. Something, that's something I'm strongly opposed to, but, yeah, that's being done. <laughs> right. But, but what I'm saying is it's possible. Yeah, I mean, penalties, they're... At least in the software I'm working on, on NFS, they're called penalties, but in the end you use them to give bonuses or give penalties. And, I mean, an obvious way or an obvious reason why you want to penalize something is because they they really broke the rule at one point. 
I mean, jumping the gun, as you call it, like uh, starting the race too early usually is not really a, a breach of rules. It's simply you did the task wrong and you get awarded zero points. And yeah, that mistake's usually done by an individual pilot maybe once. And if they're a little hard with learning, then maybe twice, but then that's it. And they know how to do it. And they realize that starting two minutes late is always better than 30 seconds early. And that's why I think you shouldn't be lenient in this regard in low-level competitions because it's better for them to learn it in a low-level competition than at the World Championships. My question isn't really about... Because, I mean, for example, <clears throat> there's been big discussions in competitions where there are airspace restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, for example, you're not allowed to go above 3,000 meters. Yeah. And in some competitions, you get a penalty depending on how far you bust that airspace. And in other mm-hmm. competitions, it's just like, if you bust it, you bust it, that's it. You've broken the rules yeah. and we're going to chuck you out. My question uh, isn't really about the rights and wrongs of that. It's about how far the scoring systems can, you know, how much flexibility... Mm-hmm. the task setters of God with so regards to those kind of things basically those uh, all those things you mentioned I mean jumping the gun as I said that's basically in the rules it says well if you jump the gun if you start too early you get zero points in hang gliding it's a little different uh, they actually even at the world championship level they just yeah you get a, a small penalty for starting too early but other things like uh, airspace violation like I don't know, about aggressive flying or on the flip side, on the bonus side, uh, things like landing out next to a pilot crash and had a problem and helping that pilot. All those things, they're not really part of the scoring formula. There's something that's being applied to the scoring in the end, but it's usually at the meet director's discretion on a case-by-case basis. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about what information should pilots be looking for when they arrive at a competition. You said earlier that they're standing at the briefing and ask the meet director and he scratches or he or she scratches their head and kind of goes, uh, I need to ask the scorer. But mm-hmm. what are, what is it as a pilot coming to a competition? What should I be looking for? What information do I need? Well, to I can tell you what I usually look for. Those are basically, uh, I want to know which scoring formula is being used. And nowadays it's usually either GAP or PWCA. And then still, I want to know the details. I want to know which version, which year, because there's considerable differences between GAP 2002 and GAP 2011. There are some details that are different. So I want to know which formula exactly is being used. And the second one is, what are the scoring parameters? What are the GAP parameters that are being set? What is nominal distance, nominal time, nominal goal, and minimum distance? That, for me, just helps me to to form a picture of also what, what, what is expected. What, what can I expect in terms of how long will the flights be, how far will they be, what do I need to prepare for in, the, uh, in terms of uh, flying time, time I'm going to spend in the air at this site and this competition. And that's basically all. I had never actually thought about asking that and how it would actually assist my flight preparation because now that I've thought to ask what the nominal time is, if they're saying to me it's two hours, then on my glider I should probably be expecting to fly three and a half and that should actually influence quite a lot how much food I take, how much clothing I wear, how much water I take. Exactly. Yeah, it never occurred to me before, so thank God I spoke to you today. (laughs) What else? How would it influence your tactics once you know these things? Well, 
I mean, as I said, right now, I, I, for me, the biggest thing is to know whether they use the GAP or the PWCA formula. Because the, the, the biggest thing, the biggest difference there is uh, how how are the lead-out points calculated. And let's just say in PWCA, the lead-out points are more aggressively calculated. And so you get more lead-out points for flying out front early on in the race. And that can influence your tactics. I mean, if you know that lead-out points won't play so big a role until halfway through the race, like it's the case in GAP, then there's no point in really rushing out front early on. But if you know that you get rewarded quite a bit for flying out early on in the, with the PWCA formula, then you may actually start pushing earlier in the race. Okay, so when it comes to the end of the week and you've flown five tasks and it's the last task, will you then, I mean, say like you're, you're third overall, knowing about the parameters and what, what's been set, will that normally influence your decision making? I don't think it should at that point because by then you're already totally in the flow. You know how the site works. You know, you obviously play the game really well already. And why should you change that now just because it's the last day? But uh, if you've got a suspicion that it's not going to be a thousand point day, but you know that you have to earn, I don't know, 400 points, so it's better to fly conservatively or you need to race all out because you need to get an extra 20 points I mean, per person. At that you. point, it's really about the other people. You, you don't race for points, you race against the others. So you, if, uh, yeah, I mean, if it's the last task, my thinking is more about who do I need to pass now to maybe gain another spot in the ranking and who do I need to fend off who's coming up behind me. But that's on a pilot-by-pilot basis and not really points. Maybe there's people who see it differently, who calculate by points, but from also talking to, to other people in my team and all, I don't think that people really think about points and what do I need to do to gain points. Because you see, the whole thing, the whole formula is so intransparent, it's so complicated that after you've flown a task, nobody will be able to tell you how many points they gain. And so you can't really adapt your tactics to that. The best thing is just to, to fly as good as you can and to, to position yourself relative to the other pilots. That's one of the big criticisms that we have with, with this system where with those lit four little competitions within the competition that you may you may sit in goal, see the whole field coming in, but the guy who flies over the goal line first is not the winner in the end. And that confuses people a lot. And then if it's not a super good day, uh, you're in a, at the site where nominal time is two hours and the fastest guy took only an hour and a half. And maybe the distance wasn't quite uh, 60 kilometers that were set as nominal distance. Then you have no idea how many points the day will be worth. I try to guess it in every time and I'm always off. And I know of a lot of others who have the same problem. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a running joke by now that if you land, what do you think, how many points it's going to be? And people guess anything between 100 and 1,000, and, but usually you're way off. So I think you shouldn't spend too much energy trying to figure that out. That's what the computer is for, what the math is doing. You just should concentrate on flying. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're for, right? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Over the last couple of years, 
in this area, things have been pretty stable, so things don't change much. And I think that's a good thing because then you really, over time, with your experience, I see that especially with the top pilots, they actually adapt over time to whatever gives them the maximum of points. And that's not a conscious process. That's just happening. They see what gives me the best result. And then they just keep on flying consistently in a way, in a way that, that gives them that maximum of points without them having to understand what the maths is behind it. The only place where there's been some change over the last two, three years was basically in how we deal with stopped tasks. So there, there's some development there. Most of the time, tasks are not stopped, so people are hardly affected by those changes. Yeah, I know there's a lot of different ways of scoring stopped tasks. I mean, obviously, it gets scored from 10 minutes before it's stopped. But even then... That is one way to do it. There, there was really... There, I mean... Originally, it was, if no pilot is in goal, the task is worth nothing. And then over time, people were flying really great tasks. Like we had one in the PwC in France. The last time we were there was it 2009. We had one in Nancy. And we flew that, and we flew 95% of the task. But the last turn point, there was rain there, and they had to stop it. And they had to stop it two minutes before the first pilot would have arrived in goal. And the whole thing was worth zero. And that <laughs> it upset a lot of people because they'd flown basically a whole race. It was just about gliding down from the last turn point into goal and two minutes. And uh, because we couldn't fly that, because they stopped the race before that, it was worth zero. And so they started thinking about other ways of judging whether a stopped task is worth zero or not. So they added how long did the race run? Like, some say that if a race ran for an hour or more, it should be scored, regardless of uh, whether it stopped or not, regardless of whether you have pilots in goal or not. And over time, more and more things came to it. Like we had this case in the PwC in the first super final in Italy, where they stopped the task and basically the whole gaggle, the whole field, the whole 120 pilots were still together thermaling in the same thermal at that point when they stopped it. So it made actually a difference whether you were on the side of the thermal that was towards the waypoint or on the side of the thermal that was away from the waypoint that made a 400-point difference. <gasps> 400 points? Yeah. So they thought maybe that's not the ideal way to do it. They couldn't change it in that competition. And that basically, yeah, some people just... Yeah, for them the competition was over because they were just at that moment in time they were on the wrong side of the thermal. So Ulrich developed some further things into the PWCA formula to compensate for that, to decide basically at the moment when we stop the task, is the race still full on going? Is everybody still close together? Or is the race already totally decided and we can score it fully like they did with the stop task in France this year? I mean, they stopped it. No pilot in goal, but we'd already flown for, what was it, an hour and a half, two hours. And the field was so spread out over the course line that if the race had run till the end, maybe individual pilots would just jumped one or two spots forward or, after, uh, or backwards. But overall, the race was run, so it was worth a 1,000 points. And that's, those are the new developments in terms of stop tasks. 
No, I think that's a really good development because I think there should also be some um, acknowledgement that tasks are stopped for different reasons. Uh-huh. You know, so we had to stop tasking the Brits in Italy this year because we had an injured pilot and uh-huh. a helicopter had to come. But uh-huh. he was right, he was in the lead gaggle, so everybody was coming up to him, so everybody uh-huh. was in their position. Uh-huh. But then we had another stop task, which was actually cancelled because we didn't go past the nominal time. Uh-huh. That was because there was rain on different parts of the course. Uh-huh. So yeah. it was an unequal race because uh-huh. depending on where you were, uh-huh. you weren't yeah. getting rained on. Is there a safety question? Yeah. And I also think that if, you know, before it was a decision of, if, especially, yeah, no pilot in goal. So there was a tendency amongst uh, meet directors to wait until the first pilot was in goal and then stop the task. Which isn't good for safety. No, it's not good for safety. And then it was introduced, yeah, the race has to run for at least an hour and a half. So guess how long meet directors waited until they stopped the task, even if a big major thunderstorm was building up. Uh, Yeah, we wait till an hour and a half and then we stop it. (laughs) And so making that more flexible really makes it easier for meet directors to decide, well, now we stop it and uh, hopefully we'll still get scoring out of it and get some points. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, no, I do too. I really do. And that leads me on to another question that I've just thought of, uh-huh. which is task setting committees. They're not usually involved in, in the setting of these parameters, but presumably they have to know them to know roughly you know, what they would be looking at as a good task for an area that they might not be familiar with. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe better not. Maybe just look at all the other information they have and set the best task for the day, regardless of whether that's going to be a thousand points day or not. Otherwise, they may be tempted to yeah, push it too far like, or, or make it too easy. I don't know. I think the task committee really should look just at the day and what they want to achieve in terms of, yeah, yeah, maybe pilots in goal. How many pilots do they want to have in goal? But that's really hard to judge. I mean, you can really say, I want to have half the field in goal, but can you really do something in task setting that will get you this? I don't think. 15-kilometer so, tasks. <laughs> yeah, but then you have 100% of the pilots in goal, and it wasn't really a proof of uh, pilot skills. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, I yeah. mean... I- so I think the task committee or the task setters... Nah, they shouldn't really have too much of that in mind. They really should concentrate on creating a safe and valid task for for the conditions in hand. Well, that's really brilliant. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, And yes, I will approach my next competition differently and I'll ask a few questions. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you good luck with that. (laughs) Thank you very much. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the Paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and would be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.